1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings from inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics, and I am joined by Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, welcome. So great to see you. What's going on?
2: Same, nothing. What's going on with you, Rob? How's your week going?
1: Going, going great. I was actually, I was going to ask you. And I've brought this up before, but there's been a little bit of a change, so I wanted to, to check in with you. Have you listened okay. to the show recently? I was listening to our show in my car.
2: Okay. Do you and- not normally listen to our show? <laughs> no, I
1: listen to the show when we do okay. as we edit it, but I I don't typically listen to it in the car, and it, it just kind of came up in terms of the podcast queue. Uh-huh. And so the ads, have you heard of our ads lately? I
2: mean, I like, yes, but I don't pay attention to them. So yes and no. I probably should. So why? Okay, here's us. what's
1: happening on our ads. Okay. Mostly in Spanish, which oh. is great. I'm excited okay. about that. Yeah. And then two, a lot of Botox ads. So then, oh, so I was just like, so as I'm listening to them, I'm like, oh no, are they on to me? Are they, 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 they on to me? They, That's what I was so thinking. The, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this is, but I'm, I'm kind of actually proud. Like, this is our demographic. Botox and Spanish speaking. I'll take Boom. it. Yeah. I'll take
2: it. Yeah, of it. of, of
1: all cool. the audience I could have had, I'm, I'm totally in.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm all for it.
1: Excellent. So what's going? What's happening yeah. this week on the show, Nadia?
2: Yeah, so this week on Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to filmmaker and comedian Aiza Fatima. We'll also discuss Trump judges and the Fearless Fund and CEO Courage. And later we'll be ranting about mandatory back to work and raving about John. I can never say his, I don't, can't enunciate his name. Help me out.
1: Leguizamo.
2: Leguizamo. Did I say it right? Leguizamo. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> show on <laughs> Latino cultures in the U.S., which I'm really excited to hear about. So that's what we got going on this week.
1: Awesome. Well, let's first get to our segment, which people know as the Deeds. You ready?
2: I'm right. Re- always. Yep. All
1: right. All right. It. Let's talk about the fearless fun. This is an update on something that is super important in the DE&I world. As of last week, a panel of three appellate judges in Georgia blocked the Fearless Fund. That's so, right. This is the all female, I think all black female venture capital fund there in Atlanta. The judges blocked it from awarding a grant to black women entrepreneurs. Two Trump appointed judges sided with the American Alliance for Equal Rights. That's the group that backed the lawsuits that overturned affirmative action and college admissions
2: at Harvard, and right?
1: Yeah. At Harvard in North Carolina. Um, and then they said that the grants were racially exclusionary so the judges said that a venture capital fund earmark so so st- stop Did for you a second hear me here.
2: sigh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry I just yeah. like read really deeply because i was like nadia
1: your thoughts <sighs> your thoughts i mean my
2: thoughts i mean i i'll keep it short but like this you know to trump elected judges <laughs> this is a result of electing a really terrible human being into office with like really (laughs) malicious values so it's a shame because i think we're not understanding like the reason why this organization like the fearless fund was put into place right to really elevate historically marginalized minoritized groups of people in terms of folks who receive funding and so, you know, to claim like reverse racism or whatever is is just really uh, it's sad. So what I would say is like, let's pay attention because we have an election coming up. And um, in 2024 and your vote is really important and who we vote for has really uh, severe ramifications down the road as it relates to things like this. So,
1: yeah, let me make, let me make you more. Should angry. I get off Not my you. soapbox. <laughs> Let me make you more angry just to talk about some of the logic that was used in this particular ruling, Nadia, because I find it just fascinating, right? So the judges said that a venture capital fund earmarking funds for black women entrepreneurs probably violated the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which barred racial discrimination in contracts. So think about that for a second. 1866, think about the environment for newly freed slaves and what that law was designed to do. And then 150 years later, two actual appellate court judges equated that providing a $20,000 grant to black women founders and the harm that, that they say that does to uh, white mm. people, presumably, they equated that with the conditions that black people faced in 1866. And so mm. this is, is just mind-blowing. It can't be, I don't think, an accurate interpretation of the law. Remember that only 1%... Well, if
2: it's written for and by (laughs) the certain people, then yes. That's what we're saying, right? Like this is systemic institutional change that we're looking to change. And it's just not... It's not happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I predicted this. We talked about this a few weeks Mm ago. And you can always find a judge somewhere that will agree with you. And that's probably true on both conservative and liberal causes. And so I think that, you know, obviously... They know that if they can just get this to the Supreme Court, then they'll continue to chip away at affirmative action in corporations as well and private enterprise. So so this is all happening. This is all it's it's a slow moving train, but it is happening. And I think that there's really you say you can vote, but it's it's a little too late uh, mm-hmm. in, in this particular case. And that you know that train's already left the station. So more to come. And I'm sure we'll we'll come back to this over and over again over the next couple of years.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of harm there and. I don't expect you to answer this question but I think one thing that's just like coming to my mind is like we we've had so many other venture capitalists on our podcast and I'm thinking of some of those folks that support or their values are aligned to really supporting founders that have historically been marginalized or not had the opportunity to secure funding and so like what happens with them and that's a very scary Situation, So, I yeah, I think we got to keep our eyes on this. And it's just something that came to my mind. So I'm thinking I mean,
1: there are women. There are there are women focused funds. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if race and gender cannot be used in college admissions and then then presumably that same thing would apply in terms of gender and gender identity in private enterprises. So a lot there going to keep talking about it. But Rob, uh, way to was- start
2: off this podcast episode. Super light and fun. huh? <laughs>
1: Well, well it's really it's it's really important it's really important to take smart approaches in in terms of getting the things done that we want to uh, accomplish going forward. Agree.
2: Agree. All right, well, um so my deed here is um a brand that we all love is Patagonia. Would you agree to that?
1: I would agree. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's a good yeah. it's a good brand. aligned to its values. So this past week Patagonia's um CEO Uh, shared that fear stops companies from fighting back against anti-woke politicians. And um, so at the 2023 Fast Company Innovation Festival in late September, CEO Ryan Gellert shared his reasons why companies choose not to engage in the national kind of identity politics. And he equates it to fear. And then the second reasoning being that because companies get in trouble over politics and we saw a lot of this, right? Like this past year, for example, with Bud Light, as you may recall, where they leveraged Dylan Mulvaney, a transgender social media star to really market their brands and the the pushback. And so we saw what companies, you know, think of themselves as like contending with polarizing social politics. Like to me, it's like, like your thoughts before I dive in a little bit further.
1: Well, I mean. The only thought I had was I think you mentioned leadership, and you know, I you and I both have worked in large corporations, right? Sure. And I always consider corporations are the places where courage goes to die, right? <laughs> like, le- <laughs> right. So, yeah, <laughs> I would, you know, the most courageous people I met inside those buildings did the worst in terms mm-hmm. of how their career went inside it, the ended building, up
2: leaving, yeah, and the people totally.
1: that I thought were absolute. The, you know the kind of people that went whatever direction the wind was blowing they did quite well in those environments so and i think that inequality within these organizations is a big reason for that right so like mm-hmm. so you know that uh, there's such a large discrepancy between what a ceo or an executives make versus the frontline worker and so right. the rewards are exceptional as you go towards the top of a big corporation so you know there. It, the incentive is to not make waves. The higher you go, the less incentive you have to make waves because there's a lot on the line. And so, yeah. you know, so you get, take that in a situation where you're getting a lot of feedback that's, that says that your organization is too woke on Instagram or Twitter and you get the numbers that say that sales are declining and that we might lose some money this quarter, right? So are you going to back down, Adia? You absolutely are. hundred percent, hundred times out of hundred. And so, right. yeah, so, I, you know, the one thing I would say is you're talking about Patagonia. And you specifically asked me to disagree with you on things. So I'm okay, going to try to do go, that. Sure. But I'm just not sure. Sh- I'm not sure how brave the the CEO of Patagonia is with a 90% white, uh, wealthy, oh, elite customer base to go oh, out on customers. a limb yeah, that's a good and point. support liberal causes, right? And so, and then you also sent me <laughs> some stuff from the, the former CEO of Merck, Merck, who is retired. So the environment is quite a bit different than when he was CEO of Merck. And so I just think that you know, it's really tough to be courageous when you're the captain of some of these ships that are that are very big and have very, very broad constituencies.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair to say, like, when you consider your consumers, you consider your community, you consider the pushback that you might receive. And we need to have courageous leaders, because one, role modeling is everything. And there's such a power dynamic. So if you are able to leverage your stance, and as like, you know, Um, Ken Frazier, like the former CEO of Merck, had had said, stand up and speak out. I think that speaks volumes, especially if we consider the new generation coming into the workforce, because that's what they're expecting. And so things are shifting. Like, I think we are really in interesting times because things are starting to shift socially, politically, in the workforce, expectations norms accommodations are really being sought from this newer generation and so yeah we 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 we're just kind of observing it you and i we might be retired by the time we actually see something <laughs> shift but it'll be really interesting to observe i think for sure
1: yeah yeah no and i think that i think that the days of neutrality i don't think you can be neutral i think those things are over right and i think that yeah. corporations will have to pick a side and it's going to get really intense for them In this election cycle, for sure. That's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. Yeah. (laughs) Fun. Exciting. Wild
0: times.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for that, Nadia. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and we will be back with actress and comedian, Isa Fatima. Stay tuned to Inclusive Collective. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
2: Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective Podcast, we welcome Aiza Fatima. Aiza is an award-winning filmmaker, actress, playwright, and comedian. Her feature film, American-ish, world premiered in 2021. The film has won 25 awards at festivals and has been acquired by Sony International for worldwide distribution in November 2023 with a theatrical run in October. It's out in theaters now. Aiza has played recurring roles in Law & Order, has been on other shows like Blue Bloods, Mr. Robot, The Good Wife, just to name a few. She received her MFA in writing for film and TV from Emerson College and is a graduate of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. She has been featured on NPR, Women's Hour, The Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and The New York Times. Welcome, Isa. So great to have you join us this
3: week on Inclusive Collective. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Aiza, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great to see you. Pleasure to meet you. So let's talk about Americanish. It's getting its theatrical release finally and so congratulations first of all i want to talk about the journey of the film because it hasn't been entirely linear so tell us about some of the ups and downs the things that you've gone through and that it's taken to get to this moment for this film
3: yeah you know um so many honestly like we have been i've been working on this film for 10 years this year
0: uh, wow. so wow.
3: yeah it's um wow. americanish is a uh, uh, and it actually, even started before then because it comes from a one-woman show, Dirty Pecky Lingerie. It's characters from that show, which I started writing in 2009, 2010. I performed it for the first time in 2011. And then it. 2013, I had just come back from uh, doing that Mera Fringe Festival with the show. And I was playing in New York City at the Cherry Lane Theater. And this Egyptian-American filmmaker, Iman Zawari, was in the audience that night. She was just in town for her birthday and came in to see the show and then kind of approached me afterwards about possibly turning it into a feature film. And we, you know, she and I had so much stuff in common. We liked the same kinds of films. And kind of had this uh, very similar vision for those kinds of stories we wanted to tell, always like with comedy first. And so, yeah, we kind of went down this journey of like working on the script together. And then it's taken all these years and so many trials and tribulations later. And, you know, and it's great that the film has been picked up for distribution now. With a major studio it's very exciting but also just so people know this is done super independently you know we couldn't we were actually rejected mm. by name any major anybody like any major studio mm-hmm. any like major. investor yeah, yeah or, or studios or studios yeah. were like or the the ones we were like able to approach not that we approached all of them because we just didn't have access to be honest oh. but like labs film festivals all of them right you know for various reasons right and so we kind of had to turn to the American Muslim community and be like, Hey guys, give us money. And you know, those of you who are from that community, you know that that community does not believe in the arts or supporting the arts. So it's like, kind of, the art has to hurt. They don't, cause. Mostly because they don't want us to be in those professions, right? Like they're like, we don't understand. Yeah, you're not a it. doctor or a lawyer or a finance person. Like, what's up? Yeah. Like, how? What is this? So, yeah. Right. So it was kind of a bit of an uphill battle, and it just took years and years and years trying to convince my own community to kind of fund this.
2: Was it intentional to try to seek funding from? I, I, I know it Muslims was, was intentional,
3: community? and I think we just didn't know any better. It was. It's sort of the hardest thing to do, I think. I don't know why we went that route. We just kind of knew people. You know, it's like one thing would lead to another. We knew some people who early on promised a lot and then later, really, like, ghosted us completely. So, right. so it was, it's just fundraising is really- Do you fun.
1: want to name I, them here? Do yes. I yeah,
3: have a list. Let me take out my- Do you
1: have pictures as well? Fears, because we my yeah.
3: long list. Do you hear it? You hear us, these papers? <laughs> this is my long list. No. And I have pictures. No, literally, we would meet, like, these, like, millionaires and they'd be like- I remember sitting with this uncle, Basie uncle in his office in like the UK. And at the end, I did this whole one hour long pitch. And he ran a foundation, by the way, definitely a millionaire in a townhouse <laughs> that he owned that where I yeah. met him on the top floor. And then he's like, I only give money to poor people. You don't look <laughs> like poor people. Oh, he was like, I don't look oh, like poor you people. Don't look and and, people? and that was wow. it. And I was like, damn. You know, I think it's interesting. Like advocacy looks so Different for a certain generation, like our parents' generation, they just thought that they should build mosques. And that's what they do. And they're like, that's how we're oh, going to yeah, integrate. Yeah. I don't even know if they were thinking about integrating, but they're like, that's how we're going to live our life. We're going to build mosques, you know? And I think for us, totally. like we think about Islamophobia in the world and how to kind of navigate that and how to really squash that. And it's like, I think for me, the answer is create stories, tell your own authentic stories if you are Muslim, because. Uh, be- and show us ourselves in all of our diversity. That's how you fight Islamophobia, because people just not, don't know what a Muslim is or what one looks like. Um, so I think we need many, many stories out there by Muslims and about yeah. Muslims, right?
2: So actually, that, that I, I'm curious about kind of your, um, like your background or, or elements or parts of yourself in American-ish or um, do you find like your identity like you trying to kind of put components of your identity into the film and what did that look like? Could you elaborate? I
3: think we're that? always as writers putting bits of ourselves and everything be right you know so I I think for sure and it's so interesting because the story is generational so there's a there's a younger character who's like 20 years old in college um there's an older sister who I play who is a working woman and trying to climb up this corporate ladder, you know, in in a company that's very male-dominated. And then there's a mom um, who's raised these two girls just like on her own in New York City. And then there's a cousin who's come over just to get married to marry a doctor, <laughs> <laughs> as one does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as one I does. did that. Uh, so, you did so. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so... I yeah, I think I definitely I find like as a writer, you put pieces of yourself in all of these characters. And I think one of the things that I obviously really relate to is like I worked in America for a long time. My last job job was at Google Mm. working in tech. And so took me so long. It actually took me writing this story to be like, oh, I was like all those years trying to climb up the corporate ladder that wasn't built for me Mm -hmm. ever. And it was such a struggle. And I think I've definitely taken some of that and put that into the film because that's like based on my experiences, right? And like I'm working not just at Google, but at other companies as well. You know, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and I feel like those that's just just Mm -hmm. in so many of these companies. It's just some nice words people use. I don't even know if they know what that means.
1: Yeah, no, I I had a question about your experience there at uh, Google, right? So we we do talk about workplace culture on this show. So what was it about Google's culture that drove you so far away from the uh, from from you know mainstream corporate culture and into writing your own film?
3: Yeah, when I you know I'm just a person. I want to leave the world a little bit better than I found it. I want to make a difference in my small, tiny little way. I I want to affect change and. When I was at Google, I totally drank the Kool-Aid and bought into this idea that I was helping the world, you mm-hmm. know? And then at the end of the job, I was like, oh, my God, I just helped mm-hmm. Google sell ads. That's <laughs> what I do for a living, really, is what I'm doing, said yeah. That's to be real. I was like, but ad-serving technologies, that was one of my main products that I worked on. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, it was very frustrating, I think, also, like having been there for a uh, not really quite at the beginning but sort of at the beginning um and just like seeing the culture change i think when i first started it was a very small like i think i can't remember now exactly but i think i was like employee number 300 something in the new york office and and not Mm -hmm. that much further down overall worldwide at that point there weren't so many of the offices that exist today didn't even exist back then because i remember we were trying to set up certain offices like you know, and train those people up like in the the other teammates, like in UK and Ireland during my time there. And so anyway, it was like such a small company, truly felt like you were maybe making a difference and it was something bigger than just you. And then it became just a corporation and it was just kind of like, I remember like sometimes going to my manager with ideas and be like, hey, I think like we could do this thing and it would like really help the team. And literally my manager would be like, eh, just, you know, just answer the emails. Just answer your emails. Like, whatever. I'm Just like, that's your job. Just don't worry about this other oh, bigger yeah. picture thing. Yeah. You know, and I have to say, you guys, it was a little bit backstabby. There were like people who were just literally mm. to steal your ideas, pass them off at, as their own, like, you know, some of that is in the film and it comes from my own lived experiences of like working in these oh, spaces, wow. especially like when you're working in tech as a woman. You know, I, I think this just aren't that many women. You're constantly surrounded by men. Yeah. And it's a hostile, unfriendly kind of an environment.
2: I was going to ask, Isa, um, I'm so you had mentioned earlier, like you had gotten some um, you went to some of these like Muslim uncles homes and like trying to investors, like trying to secure capital and so forth. I'm curious, I talked to several Muslim Americans, particularly for my research that I'm doing right now in my dissertation, the focus on the American Muslim experience Mm -hmm. in the kind of the workplace. And I'm curious from your perspective, because to me, like those uncles or like those people that have like the capital to support their community could show up as like sponsors or show up as like mentors even in some capacity. I'm curious from your perspective, being a creative and being like in this filmmaking world. Are there, are, are have you experienced, you know, sponsorship or mentorship in, in different capacities as you're trying to get this um, film kind of off the ground? You
3: said you've been working on it for 10 years. So, like,
2: yeah. who's helped play it a part in that kind of role?
3: I'll say some people who played, like, honestly, a really major part in the end are men, to be honest. So I won't name names, but he's a, he is a VC person and he, like, funds stuff and other companies and i remember when i was early on pitching um he's young you know this of course i've been pitching this thing for 10 years so this, he was in his 30s when i was 50 it's been 10 years guys anyway but young for that time he wasn't quite like an uncle age right so i, I remember he just like he, he heard the pitch and he sat me down he's like listen your pitch is shit like what are you selling me like where's your financial plan and i was like, I don't know it's art he just like showed me like how people pitch him when they're pitching him tech companies and stuff. He's like, this is a financial plan. This is how you do it. He did all of that and just really just like told me how shit my plan was. And then later I turned around and was like, okay, I'm going to write you a check for 10 grand. And when I said to him, I was like, hey, I know, sweet guy, very sweet guy. And, and I said, I was like, listen, that's our investment level kind of a thing. It's not just a donation. And he was just like nope, I'm not going to invest. I believe in you as an artist. I'm going to donate this money. So he wrote, he he gave us a donation and and insisted that he did not want to invest. So we don't owe it back to him. It just came and, you know, it's for the film. So him, and then I have to say, and I will name a name because he's our EP. So you can just, it's Googleable. Mohamed Malice, who has been an incredible supporter and, you know, has supported a lot of films, not just ours over the years. He had BAFTA winner and Oscar nominated short film. Uh, last year two years a few years ago sorry that was a a Palestinian uh, British film and uh, he's had several several other films over the years that he's supported from Muslim filmmakers um, and others as well and him I feel like he has really in a way inadvertently has been a mentor I don't know if he means to be or not but we are taking a lot of meetings Mm -hmm. with him you know with other folks and i'm just learning a lot from just watching him he's somebody who's has uh, been in business and runs his own many many companies very very successfully for decades right and uh, yeah so i feel like that's been a really big learning opportunity
1: when you were first pitching the movie like so just i'm even thinking about getting it on film festival programs and you, you weren't having success yeah. and then you were having success was it just what was the i'm just curious of. of what yeah. people were telling you in terms of what they didn't see in the film?
3: Yeah, then... no one tells you anything. They'll you'll no. never get any feedback. No. <laughs> I think, look, I think here's the thing. Festivals have a certain kind of agenda, right? They'll do, like, if you look at the history of a lot of festivals, especially mm-hmm. Muslim content, it is... Like, this woman was stoned to death by her family or community or this woman <laughs> ran away from her abusive father, right? They're so interested. Yeah, it's like so They're so, so interested in that. Yeah. So I think our film definitely doesn't. It's like a comedy. It's a family comedy. It's a rom-com. Like, you can't, you know, even though I think it's a bit of an anti-rom-com because it puts women first and, like, you know, they're what they want for their lives before any man that they're chasing. So, you know, it's interesting. But I think, festivals kind of don't really necessarily program that unless it comes from a celebrity, right? So while we have some very well-known actors in the film, we don't quite have a huge celebrity level person. So there was, that was one. I think another really interesting thing, we were editing this film for three years because we just like kept running out of money and running out of steam. I remember we uh, edited a version. I didn't love it. I was like, eh, I don't know guys, but the director loved it. She was like, let's put this out into the world. We did, got rejected then COVID happened. We had to like kind of come up with more funds, open the edit, re-edit. And then, you know, I don't know, it's weird. Sometimes you hit a certain moment in, in culturally, right? Because I feel like George Floyd happened, right? COVID happened, the lockdown happened. And coming out of all of that trauma, people wanted something a little bit more happy. And I will have to say it was our own community that gave us the platform and you know it was it it was again still getting rejected a little bit even after all of that happened but then um we got programmed our first festival was cam uh film festival which is the largest um asian festival in north america and -hmm. has been around for like 25 some years and uh we won the audience award there and when that happened it opened Mm -hmm. up so many other doors and we were programmed at like a lot of sort of mainstream kind of You know, like Savannah Film Festival, Cincinnati International Film Festival, um, the Heartland Film Festival, where we won the Grand Jury Prize, and then a lot of like Asian film festivals, South Asian film festivals. So it just kind of became this. um, It was kind of exciting. I don't know. Something changed, and I'm guessing at what changed. That's that's all I can tell you. And
1: and, and you attribute that more to people wanting to hear the happy story as opposed to them taking stock and saying, we'd like to have or feature different voices in, t- in terms of our storytellers
3: I think it was a lot of it I think it was that as well because I think the world just changed so much right in that time mm-hmm. and we did re-edit and I think the film is this this edit has been re-edited and redone like three or four times in that those like three years we kept re-editing and so I think this may be the strongest version of this film that we've ever had so sure. that's one the art itself improved over the cool. time because we had so many so much time. And and I think, like, the the world changed and people's views changed. And they were like, I think people are definitely right now, especially, they're like, oh, yeah, let's hear the women's story. Let's hear Muslim women. Let's hear what they have to say. You know, look, it's 2023. And this is the first rom-com done by American Muslim women about American Muslim women. It's, like, never been done before.
2: Yeah. I'm so excited to watch it. I can't even Thank tell you. you. So, so excited. Aiza, um, I have a question in terms of, um so, so the writer's strike has ended or coming to an end and just curious about your thoughts because we're here, you know, uh, Rob and I kind of, we, we don't, we, we don't kind of, we do promote equitable and fair workplaces and work environments. And just curious like what this, what that meant for you or for your colleagues um, in, in the industry. Yeah.
3: Look, I mean, I a hundred percent support the strikes and, you know, my other union, which is the actor's union is still on strike. So we're still not done with this. So, Yeah. I mean, we need to pay people what they deserve to be paid. If you're working, this has been explained. It's like you, you only need to make, you guys, it's like 20 some grand, right? That you need to make in order to get your health insurance through SAG. And working actors don't make that amount of money. It's ridiculous. It's like we have to hustle and have so many side jobs and barely be like a functional human to live in this world. And we can't so those are the things we're finding fighting for and I a hundred percent support it.
1: So this so of this film, so obviously a labor of love for many years. And so just tell us what's what's next. What are you working on? What where can we uh where can we look for your next project?
3: I am working on this other project on the side. Actually, that kind of got launched into the world much after uh American-ish. It's called Muslim Girls DTF. But like mm-hmm. discuss their faith wing yep. wing. So okay yeah so uh we have a pilot that we've been trying to get out into the world and then with the current strikes and all the stuff that's going on we were kind of like let's pivot into live shows so all the women who worked on the show um a lot of us are also stand-up comics so we were like let's just do live shows because right now we can so we just did our first one in august and then it got accepted into the new york uh comedy festival this year so november 4th We're going to be doing another, our second live show at City Winery this year. And I'm super excited to just like put this out into the the live show aspect, the stand up stuff more out. And I think we're going to start taking it to other cities and touring with the show. That is
2: so fun and fantastic. Congrats. So Aiza, um, the theatrical release is in three cities, correct? You got New York. LA and Phoenix is it? It's Ari- playing Phoenix, in a Arizona? bunch
3: of different places in Arizona, actually. Yeah, and we're gonna we're sort of in the process of adding in more cities. So just go to the uh, Americanish Film website, which is just americanishfilm dot com, and follow that theatrical page so you can know if it's going to come to one of your cities. But if not, then it's also going to be available on um, VOD pretty soon, shortly after our uh, theatrical release. Very awesome. good.
2: Well, Aiza Fatima, thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Congratulations and good luck with all the projects you thank got going you. on. Thank you for
3: having me.
2: Stay with us folks. We'll be right back for our Con Reflections and Raves and Rants.
1: Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We just finished chatting with Aiza Fatima. Nadia, how fun is it to have a big movie star join us on Inclusive Collective?
2: It's so fun. I'm really excited to see her film Americanish, and um, like she mentioned on the podcast, it's uh, right now in three major states. It's in California, New York, and Arizona. Perhaps it will be distributed across America. So I'm really excited to see it. I hope other folks will go see it. I'm particularly excited because what she mentioned in terms of representation, like I finally get to see. Someone like myself on screen, someone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know who portrays like an American-born Muslim Pakistani person who kind of goes through the intricacies of growing up and life in America. So really who, cool. Who
1: falls in love?
2: Who falls and, in love?
1: You know, has a lot of romantic <laughs> intrigue. You know,
2: yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> all. All of the above.
1: <laughs> I'm what did excited? you think? I'm excited I- too, and think we touched on it a little bit that these are it's just an um, immigrant stories are American stories right and this is just a really uh it's just adds to the depth and breadth of uh of of you know what film can show in terms of you know showing us who we are and I'm really excited to to see it I think it looks like a funny film she's a delightful person to hang out with so yeah uh, I'm I'm just uh, I'm, I'm excited that it'll be streamed very broadly, and, and we'll all be able to, to see it. Absolutely.
2: Very good. Well, it's that time for rants and raves.
1: All right. You're going you're gonna to rant. You're going to kick us off.
2: I'm going to kick us off because I'm ranting this week. Okay. So apparently there's a back-to-office war happening, and people are not <laughs> happy. Um, so according to a KPMG report, an overwhelming majority of CEOs plan to lure employees back to the office with preferential treatment Mm-hmm. So according to Fortune magazine, to get workers back to the office, 90 percent of the CEOs that were surveyed as part of that KPMG report plan to re- reward those who work in person with favorable assignments, phrases and promotions. And that Ooh. approach may be key to attracting and retaining employees, apparently, which the CEOs surveyed and thousands of other organizations kind of also claimed identified as their top operational priority to achieve company growth objectives through the next three years. No. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I initially read this article and I was like, I think they think they're doing a good thing. <laughs> and by incentivizing behaviors like this, but I think we need to, to pause and reflect. Like This is a great example of something where we need to pause and reflect mm. because Are we considering the employees who like sought employment during the pandemic because their accommodations and needs were being met because of work-life balance or because Mm -hmm. of uh, a disability perhaps or their family needs? And so to reward based on the ability to be able to go back to work easily, it, it doesn't sit well with me. We're incentivizing perhaps for the wrong behavior. Yeah. So again, I don't know. I'm ranting because I'm just like. Dan, sit with me well at a but time let's
1: see. At, and and don't forget at a time in which seventy thousand childcare child care providers may be not available mm-hmm. or going out of business based on a lack of government funding for child care right. right. so at, that's happening at the same time i also always wanted to do the study nadia of it seems to me that you know that as the amount of a an organization's downtown office space or real estate value goes up more likely they are to want their workers to work in that right so like that's a study that needs to uh, there's an inverse relationship in terms of how much people think that they need to be in the office versus the uh there's a high there's a high correlation between wanting to be in the office from a leader's perspective and downtown office space as well so that's that's a study that i want to i'm pretty sure that that exists
2: I'm 100% sure that exists. And I don't want to conduct that study, but I would want to read
1: People with more time than you and I should do that. So do you have any listeners, please do that. All right. Well, thanks for that. And so very short rave from me. Nadia, have you seen Leguizamo Does America?
2: I have not, but I'm dying to hear about it. So tell me more. So it's
1: really good. I just caught this. So the actor, the longtime film and TV actor, John Leguizamo, launched the show to highlight and explore Latino cultures in the U.S., it came out in April. I don't watch cable news channels anymore, Nadia, because I'm not that into self-immolation, right? So, the, <laughs> But I was on the couch the other day, and my son and I started watching it, and it's just really, really good. So check it out on all of the NBC news channels. You can okay. binge it during Hispanic or Latino Heritage Month, and I think you can get, catch it on uh, you know at a lot of different places. But uh, really good. Really highly, highly recommend.
2: Wow, look at this list of things to watch is just growing here. Right. We have American-ish and Leguizamo does America. Is that what it's called?
1: Leguizamo does America. Terrible title. Really good show. <laughs> so awesome. yeah, we're pretty Hollywood around here. So special announcements. I'll be speaking this week at the Northwest Public Employees Diversity Conference with a Ray. That's on October 10th. Get your tickets. Wait, actually, you can't. It's invite only. So, hopefully, if uh, you are in the Portland area and you're attending, then I'll get to see you there. Come say hi. That is it, Nadia, for Inclusive Collective. Just a reminder that we are consultants. We actually do work. So, if you are looking for DEI and workplace strategy consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach Nadia at Nadia at Nod Consultants or Rob at Rob at DeCano Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillian Media and edited by the one and the only RMFA. We would love to hear from you, so send us your feedback at Inclusive at You can also find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. On LinkedIn, be sure to connect with us because you can subscribe to the ICMFA newsletter. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Isa Fatima. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Nadia.
2: Thanks, Rob. you go.